Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Games for Girls podcast. Today we are talking to someone who knows firsthand what it means to be canceled through this crazy cancel culture that we live in, but also someone who's seen firsthand the corruption within athletics. Here's the interview with Jennifer Say. So Jen, I am so excited that you're on. Would you start by telling us a little bit about your athletic career? Because you are phenomenal. You are so well accomplished. Let's hear about it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a little older than you. My athletic career was back in the 80s. Um, I started gymnastics actually in the 70s. Um, most uh, of your listeners have probably heard of Nadia Kovanich. And when she won the 1976 Olympics, she was the first person ever to score a perfect 10. And little girls across the country just wanted to do gymnastics. And I was one of them. And this was just a few years after Title IX. So girls were really just getting into sports for the first time. And we didn't have as many opportunities as there are now. You know, my six-year-old daughter can basically play every sport that her eight-year-old brother plays. But I didn't have that. You know, there wasn't girls softball and Little League and soccer wasn't even in America yet. And so gymnastics was like our our choice. And so I just loved it. I raced to the gym. Gyms were popping up all over the country. And I you know, much like I'm sure you experienced as a swimmer, I showed an aptitude for it from a very young age. And by the time I was 10, I qualified for the elite level, which is the level that you start to compete nationally. Um, gymnastics, at least at the time, was considered a very young sport. You had a narrow window of opportunity. So by the time I was 10, I was training six, seven hours a day. Um, by the time I was 14, um, gosh, I was training eight, 10 hours a day. It was brutal and punishing. And I ended up being a national team member for seven years, and I was the national champion in 1986. But things went downhill from there, <laughs> and I really suffered from the abusive training culture. I had many, many injuries and a serious eating disorder, and I ended up walking away from the sport a few months before the Olympic, uh, Olympic trials in 1988. And I walked away. This is the sad part. You know, Despite all my accomplishments, I walked away pretty broken and ashamed and feeling like I'd actually not achieved much at all. Yeah, I totally understand. And I think that's something that's not talked about enough, especially within athletes, is yeah. that kind of disparity feeling when you leave your sport, especially as you mentioned, when you leave on kind of a note where you know you could have achieved more and you wish you could have achieved more. But, but following that, you had achieved so much, you know, you were national champion, all around national champion, all of those things. Um, you enter into the business career. We might be skipping a couple steps in the process. That's all right. You eventually entered into the business world and began working at Levi Strauss and Company. And I so did. Tell us about that. Tell us about your rise to, to how you got to where you were in the executive world. Yeah, I started at Levi's in 1999. It was like my third or fourth job, not my first, but I was still pretty young. You know, I was in my 20s still. 
Um, I took a, a level down to work at Levi's from my prior job because I loved the brand so much. I just I had worn it since I was a young child. Um, I can't really imagine working in business on a product that I don't wear and use and truly believe in. And so for me, as a reluctant business person, I, that was never my dream to do that. I wanted to be more of a creative. I wanted to write books and make films. Um, but I need to support myself. So I took this job in business and, uh, you know, entry level, it was in 1999, early 2000s, not the most hospitable environment for women in corporate America at that point. Um, but I just kept at it, you know, and as I moved up the ranks, I was able to really shape the culture and make it more inclusive and make it more um, equitable uh, not just for women, but for everyone. And I'm all the way up the ladder. I became a chief marketing officer in 2013. And I held that job for eight years, which is a ridiculously long period of time to hold that job. Most people keep it for about two. Um, and eventually became the brand president. and was next in line for CEO. But um, that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. Well, actually, for one reason, uh, which I can get into if you if you want, unless you want to tee it up. Yeah. In um, March of 2020, I was very outspoken about the harms that would be done to children from prolonged school closures and, you know, other restrictions like no sports and no anything. You know, where I lived in San Francisco, kids really were kept from any activities um, for close to 18 months. Even playgrounds, outdoor playgrounds were closed for nine months. And I was very outspoken about this. I have four children, all public school students. And this was a no-no. You weren't supposed to pushback on, on lockdowns or restrictions in any way. You were supposed to just follow the dictates um, from public health, which in California were more restrictive than anywhere in the country. And I did not accept that. And I spoke out for two years ongoing, despite the fact that I was told I needed to stop. Um, and eventually I was told there was no place for me at the company anymore. But rather than um, accept their severance and hush money, I, I quit in a fairly noisy fashion so that I could talk about the silencing of debate and dissent. How much was the hush money that they were offering you? It was $1.2 million. The headlines read one, but it was just above that. Oh my gosh. And so I, I don't think a lot of people realize this and I do of course because I read your book which I, I want to give you a chance to promote at the end of this too because it's a phenomenal phenomenal book uh, um, but just how brave you are just how inspiring that is and, and I think it speaks so much to you so much to what you're advocating for that you were willing to turn down that to be able to speak to speak freely which majority of people they would like to I'm think do the same thing yeah. that do the same thing um they would yeah you know i think riley much like probably like you when i started to speak out you know even before i was out to leave the company i don't think i really thought of it as particularly brave or courageous i just sort of saw something that was true that children were going to be harmed and that was sort of undeniable and i figured i need to say it and even if that was controversial in the beginning i thought that the truth would win out and that um you know, the truth would ultimately break through and people would see the error of our way. And then I had more confidence in um, people being willing to kind of stand up and say a true thing, even if it's hard. And that eventually there would be enough of us um, that we would, you know, be a significant cohort of truth speakers and there would have to be a real conversation. But that is not the world we're living in right now, as you well know. Um, 
And I, I still believe that truth outs in the end, but I think most people would rather stand with the crowd than stand apart and risk being ostracized and, you know, vilified and called terrible names. And, you know, I've lost, it's, it, look, it's hard. You know, it's hard. I've lost friends. I have fractured family relationships. I lost my job. But to me, there's nothing more fundamental than the search for truth. And if we accept lies as truth, I, I just, it, it's, what what can happen? All manner of cruelty and abuse. I mean, the whole reason uh, we accepted, you know, in the context of COVID, we accepted as truth that everyone was at equal risk, that kids were resilient, they'd be fine even if we locked them in their rooms for 18 months. That's a lie. And we know now that it's a lie. Um, but acceptance of that lie or that untruth is what allowed for the harms to happen. Um, and so I just, you know, the thing for me that is most at risk right now is the ability for us all to have discussions with people we disagree with in the name of getting to truth and not to demonize people we disagree with, but to have these open, fact-based, diplomatic discussions. And that's not happening. And the only thing I can think to do to combat that is to continue to do it and to listen to others. To listen to others as well and to try to have those conversations and model that behavior and i think that's an important piece right is to listen to others it feels like civil discourse and especially coming from a college campus we have lost the ability to encourage thinking for yourself to encourage yeah. dialogue open dialogue you're right you're immediately when you speak out about things that that go against the grain you're immediately labeled a bigot or hateful or or uneducated or, or a slew or a grifter or a this or a that or you know you can't be doing it because it's an honestly held belief because no same person could think that so you must be getting paid off on the side i guarantee you there have been no payoffs i gave up you know not just the million dollars but the future career that i would have had at levi's as ceo which is you know probably a hundred times that you know um at the very least, it's in, it's interesting. I just um, did a, a reading and kind of book event in the Chicago area, and I had a real life um, Twitter troll come to the event, and she was just screaming at me. It was like how a troll would act if it was actually a person, and she just kept screaming at me that I was a liar and a grifter. And I tried to engage and talk with her very calmly and explain that you know a grifter misrepresents themselves so that they can make money, and I've done the opposite. And at one point, I mean, it was sort of pointless, as you know, but at one point I said, what I would ask of you, ma'am, is that you just assume that my intentions are honest. I might be wrong from your perspective. I might be wrong. But why do you have to sort of slander me as somebody um, with dishonest intentions, as a person with no integrity? That's the problem. And then when you smear someone using their name, those names, it ends all conversation. You can't have one. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. So has anyone from Levi's reached out to you in the meantime? Has anyone, you know, reached out and said that they agree with you? Have they reached out and said that you messed up by your decision? What does that look like? No, no contact with anyone. Wow. That's got to be hard. You must have you had friends in the position you were in being there for, you know, almost more than 20 years, actually. Yeah, 23 years. I had real friends. You know, I had been to uh, weddings and baby showers and even funerals. Um, I was married there twice. In fact, I had four children, not at the same time. <laughs> it didn't work out the first time. 
I had four children. Um, they threw me baby showers. You know, we were in each other's lives. I had so many friends. Um, but no, and I think the the most difficult and most hurtful thing are the people that I considered real friends, not just colleagues, that didn't speak up in my defense at all. Even if they disagreed with me, but they didn't speak up just to say, you know what? She has a right to say this, just like you have a right to say what you believe. Uh, no one, not not one person, not people I had considered friends for two decades. So that was hard. Yeah, I imagine. And so, and again, you, you've you touched on this briefly, but why do you think they're that scared of losing their job, which you've proven is a very real, legitimate concern? Do you think that's what's driving them into the silence? Well, I think there's a few things. I think while it was happening, you know, yeah, I, did, I think they didn't want the taint that I had on me. You know, I was being called everything from a racist to a Trumper, which in San Francisco is like the worst thing you can be called, <laughs> um, to, you know, anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, QAnon, conspiracy theory, you know, every, it, it just went on and on and on. And and that was done. So it, that happened publicly in like town hall meetings. And so, sure, why would my uh, colleagues and friends want those names attached to them? Um, but I think it goes beyond the work environment to San Francisco as this sort of liberal bat quote unquote liberal bastion where everyone agrees everyone votes the same way and they really believe anyone that sort of steps outside of that which is essentially the democratic party platform one that i used to adhere to if you even ask a question you are suddenly you know a nutbag kkk <laughs> member like there's nothing in between you know um, and so they don't want to endure that. They, I, I get it, you know, and for a lot of people, it's not a tenable thing to lose your job. Um, but mostly I think it's the social ostracizing that people avoid. And look, I'm not going to lie. You know, it's hard. I know it's hard. Um, you know, why didn't members of your team who spoke with you quietly about the same issues, why didn't they stand up? It's the same. Right. And I do think since I've left, they've probably been told do not have any contact with her totally i i am certain they have because again you're right it's the same tactics they use and, and i know that's my end on yeah just show women's sports yeah and they are There's a lot of parallels um yeah that go with the situation whether that's the denying of truth whether that's the silencing whether that's you know secretly changing the language that we use. I mean, these cultural issues, uh, It's it should be chilling to a lot of people that you can't even ask a question. Um, so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book, promote your yeah. book by Zunbutton. Um, again, I read it. It's phenomenal. Um, so let's talk about it. Yeah, let me, let me say one thing in response to what you just said, though. I, it should be chilling. And I think the thing that's most alarming to me is how many people it is not chilling for. They're fine with it. You know, even after all the revelations about how the government pressured social media platforms to silence and deplatform and censor people as it pertained to COVID and other issues, you know, people that are loyal to party, not principle, are defending it as necessary. I, you know, and I, I don't want to malign your generation, but a lot of young people in particular are sort of defending it. And a lot of this did start on college campuses, which you alluded to earlier, and now it's kind of oozed into the workplace. Um, as far as the book, it came out a few months ago. It's called Levi's Unbutton. Thank you for for reading it. Um, 
it is more than um, a COVID rant. If if folks aren't particularly interested in that, it is a memoir, and I, you know, hopefully it's an inspiration to people to stand up and speak the truth, even if you're afraid, because we need you. Uh, we can't stand out here by ourselves um, for this for all this time. The truth needs to out in the end, and um, you don't have to do it in such a big way like I did. You don't have to blow up your life, but in your everyday life, when you are talking to a friend. And they say something that sounds kind of kooky or you know, whatever it is in small ways every day, stand up and ask questions and speak truth when you when you think something doesn't doesn't sound right or smell right. That that's really what I'm trying to do is just encourage people to do that. Um, you know, one thing I, I will add is the day after I quit my job in a very public fashion, three members of the San Francisco school board were recalled, but in a very decisive manner. And they were recalled for not opening schools. That means that most San Francisco residents agreed with me, but they were only comfortable expressing it at the ballot box. But imagine if they'd stood with me and they came to the rallies and they, you know, did not allow for me to be demonized because they stood stood with me. We would have been a force. And the most important thing is the schools would have opened and the children would not have been harmed. And I, I tell that story because it was such an illustration to me of the fact that people knew, you know, they knew and they were mad about it, but they were too afraid to come out of the shadows, but they did it in the privacy of the ballot. But we need you to do it in public because we need your help. <laughs> Absolutely. That's very true. Um, for the longest time, you know, the first few months when I started speaking out, when I would get these private messages, I, I was so honored, right? I, I felt like, you know, we're garnering support. But then as it continued, it, it quickly seeped into frustration. Um, yeah, I get that from other corporate executives. I get from, you know, CEOs will DM me and say, oh, we stand. Because, you know, a lot of what I've started speaking about is how sort of these, the the woke ideology is informing um, corporations when the stances that they take, but it's all really a charade and it's a cover um, for uh, less kind of savory and honest business practices because they're able to sort of wrap themselves in virtue and the press buys it. And all these CEOs will write to me and say they, stand with me. And at first I was encouraged by that. And then I was like, dude, stand up. You're the CEO. If you can't change the culture in the company that you work in, if you are afraid of your employees, then we have no hope. And then they sort of defend it by saying, well, I'm the breadwinner. I can't really take the risk. So was I. It's so inherently sexist to assume that, you know, my salary was secondary didn't really matter. I have been the breadwinner in my family for three decades. Um, but you got to do it. And I think those in positions of leadership in particular have such an opportunity to make change um, and inspire others to come forward. So I stopped being grateful for those DMs and I started poking back at them to to stand up and be a little braver. Well, I appreciate your stance and you've been a big inspiration to me um, throughout this process. Um, but on top of your Levi's Unbutton book, we're going back to the athlete side of Jin saying here. Um, you also were the author of Chalked Up, which yeah. is about your time as a gymnast, um, but also one of the the really incredible things that you've done. Again, another one of your productions that I have seen and followed is how you produced the Netflix documentary of Athlete A, um, which was a phenomenal documentary on Larry Nasser and the scandal of the the USA Gymnastics. Um, talk about that. What what how why did you feel compelled? to highlight this and it's just recently become in the news again because we saw where Nasser was just stabbed in prison and 
crazy. I'm surprised, honestly, it didn't happen sooner. But yeah. Uh, um, well, I wrote the book because I had continued to suffer, honestly. And it was really just my attempt to make sense of what had happened, you know, even in my late 30s as a relatively successful and healthy person. Um, if you endure a training um, that is just ripe with cruelty, you're going to have issues with anxiety and self-esteem and, you know, body image and, you know, all of the things that continued to sort of haunt me. And I wanted to make sense of it. Um, I didn't know if I could get the book published. I did. And it was, the world was not ready. That was like the first time the internet came for me. Uh, this was before me too. And so, you know, saying the things that I said, that the sport was rife with physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, it was like, she's a liar. She's a grifter. And even the people I trained with, sort of like what, you know, you have dealt with, would not stand up and say anything. And in fact, came after me and called me a liar because the image of the sport is one of happy, cute little pixies dancing around and everybody upheld that. Um, because the leadership, USAG, USOC, and the, the coaches sort of insisted on it. And these girls, even as grown women, were still chasing the approval of their coaches in this really totally bizarre way. But eventually the truth came out in 2016 when the Nasser story broke. And I held that close to me when I was speaking out about COVID. I just got the timing wrong. <laughs> you know, I forgot that it took 10 years um, in gymnastics. And I kept thinking it's so obvious with COVID and kids that it's going to break through sooner. But I think it will. I just think it's probably a decade. I don't think it's a two or three year process, you know. Um so once um, Nasser was convicted and went to prison, because I'd been one of the first people to speak, or I was actually the first person um, to write about in a first person account the abuse in the sport, I was, I came to know many of the victims, the survivors, and I just felt like this could be a movie. I didn't really know how to make one, but I thought, well, I can figure it out. Um, I knew I couldn't direct it, but I uh, I wrote the story and I found directors. At, a couple directed it and I got all the folks to agree to be in it. And, you know, they were nervous. They, they were plastered all over the news and didn't always feel well represented, but they trusted me. So, you know, they agreed to do it. And um, it came out. I mean, it's amazing. It won an Emmy for Best Investigative Documentary. I'm really proud of it. And I think the thing that was important to me was that it wasn't just an expose about Nasser, but that it connected his behaviors with the broader culture of abuse in the sport, which primes girls, frankly, to walk into his office and be abused. Because if you're already experiencing emotional and physical abuse, you're not really in a position to stand up for yourself when something's off. So that was my goal. Yeah. You can't recognize that sometimes as it's happening, which is yeah. relating it to, to what we went through. Right. When we were sharing that locker room with Thomas, I don't think we saw it as sexual harassment, right. at least myself, until a year later. And I really realized what they put us through, what we were exposed to. It's like, hold on. Well, it's so criminal. <laughs> well, it's so disorienting. The reason you didn't realize it is because they told you it wasn't. And so, you know, this is what I, I talk about this in the film and Athlete A, I appear in it a little bit and as like the voice of history. <laughs> and I, you know, I talk about in my training environment how, you know, I was training on a broken ankle and I was, you know, in pain and they were telling me I was just a lazy piece of garbage. I was starving because I ate 200 calories a day, 400 calories a day. And they told me I was, you know, a fat pig. And so the way it was eventually explained to me when I was, you know, probably close to 40 by my therapist is, you know, when a mother or a, 
a parent abuses a child, they say, I wouldn't have to do this to you if you weren't bad. So it becomes your fault. And that's kind of what happened to me. And so they're telling you, you're being overly sensitive. You're being transphobic. You're being X, Y, or Z. And so you put your own feelings of discomfort aside. And it's incredibly disorienting because then you can't trust your own perception of reality. No. But eventually reality breaks through, thank goodness. And you're like, wait a minute, that was abuse. And in any other context, before any of this happened, back in 2018, at the height of Me Too, anybody would have endorsed that view, right? That that was sure assault. Dom, it's it's in such a short amount of time, and I think yeah. was a huge piece of why it all got expedited. Um, that was interesting. It's like this time period where we essentially paused, where people. Yeah a time to get together, come up with these mastermind plans of, of how to really control us. And it's worked, which is, again, chilling. But and, they are able, and they were able to do it by saying these lies are truths. Yeah. Everyone is at equal risk. Children are super spreaders. Children are resilient. They'll be fine if we lock them inside for 18 months. Like all these things were predicated on lies. Uh, which is why it's so insidious and we can't allow it. Um, yeah, we can't. No. Tell us what you're doing now. Uh, how are you continuing to move forward? I know I just saw you at the Icons conference, which was phenomenal. You did amazing. Everyone loved you. Um, what a collection of women and men so showed up for that. I think it was a really remarkable if I, I think that a lot of the talks are available online, I'm not sure if they are or they will be, um, but a remarkable collection of academics and activists, female athletes, um, kudos to them for pulling that group together. Um, so I do that. I speak some and continue to speak out about the things that matter to me, specifically as it pertains to children. Um, you know, that's my, you know, I wish as a young child in an abusive training culture, somebody had spoken up for me. I think Children are the most vulnerable among us. They don't really have a voice. They can't vote. And they will do what is expected of them, especially young girls, I think. Um, so we have to be very careful. Like, they might agree to things that are not in their best interest. You know, and we as an adults could assume that that sort of tacit agreement means they're okay, and it doesn't. I never complained in the gym. Never. Um, but that doesn't mean I was okay, you know. Um, the other thing I'm doing is I'm making a, doc a second documentary film about the harms to children from the prolonged school closures. And we've pretty much finished filming and we're in the editing phase. It's called Generation COVID. Oh, amazing. Oh, my gosh. Well, do we know where we can find it once it's released? Not yet. It's a tad controversial, as you might fathom, as you might imagine. So, um, you know, we're going to we're going to start looking for distribution soon, but I imagine that'll be a bit of a, a challenge. I think not everybody, you, you know, there is this widespread acceptance that what we did to kids was not only unnecessary, but harmful. But there is no it's still a very controversial thing to talk about because you can't really talk about without assigning some blame. And nobody wants to do that. They want to say this thing happened and it was because of COVID, not because it was a terrible, harmful policy choice. Absolutely. Well, when you know, you let me know and I will blast it everywhere because that's rare. Um, how can people follow you? Um, I'm still tweeting despite the fact that it got me <laughs> pushed out of my job. Um, I do keep a sub stack. So if anyone follows there, just my name, 
Um, and it's all on my own website, sayeverything.com. Amazing. Well, we thank you for coming on and we thank you for being a trailblazer um, in so many different realms of of this crazy life that we're living. Back at you, Riley. Thanks for tuning in to the Gains for Girls podcast. You can download and subscribe anywhere where you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify. Um, make sure you go to outkick.com. We will see you next week. <laughs>